Well, good morning, friends. Welcome. No matter how you are showing up today, whether you're celebrating or grieving, anxious or calm, eager or tired, or some unique combination of all of that and more, in Christ, God welcomes each one of us. This is good news, and we're only just beginning. This morning, some of us are wearing retro clothing and styles today. No, we have not lost our sense of what decade we live in. But as we continue our This Is Us worship series, we're playfully participating in remembering the 1980s this morning and unpacking one of Fellowship's four values. Today is unifying. And really, if there's one thing we can be unified about, it's that the side ponytail should not come back, right? Yeah, that's fair. Uh, (laughs) um, It's our hope in this four-week series to recognize our freshly named values in who God has made us to be from our beginning, from our earliest days as a faith community, even as we seek to live out these values now and into the future. In a moment, we're going to sing together some favorite worship songs from the 1980s, and we'll recall through images what was happening in society at large and also in the life of Fellowship Church. Interestingly, the 1980s seemed to be a time when everything was big and awesome. The hair, the shoulder pads, the bright colors, and the worship music was no exception. Themes of God's greatness, power, and awesomeness came out in the music big time after a decade of the 1970s tunes had a focus on personal relationship with Jesus and sharing that with others. This morning, as we sing and take in the images, I invite you to engage your spiritual memory and remember God's faithfulness to us throughout every age. Throughout this series, you'll hear frequently that when you know who you are, you know what to do. This morning, Psalm 145 is going to guide us in rooting our identity in who God is and what God has done. Let's speak the words of this psalm from the screen. We'll do the one all responsive. I will be the one. I invite you to be the all. I will exalt you, my God and King, and praise your name forever and ever. I will praise you every day. Yes, I will praise you forever. Great is the Lord. He is most worthy of praise. No one can measure his greatness. Let each generation tell its children of your mighty acts. Let them proclaim your power. I will meditate on your majestic, glorious splendor and your wonderful miracles. Your awe-inspiring deeds will be on every tongue. I will proclaim your greatness. Everyone will share the story of your wonderful goodness. They will sing with joy about your righteousness. Would you stand and let's sing together?
long shadow prayer comes to us from Dallas Willard, uh, American uh, philosopher. Um, And even if you have not encountered his philosophical works, I think his area was like phenomenology. Even I don't even know what that means. Uh, But even if you have not encountered his philosophical works, you probably remember him from his emphasis on spiritual disciplines, uh, particularly the idea that spiritual disciplines are a way for us to cooperate with grace, uh, to be transformed um, from our hearts outward into our lives. Uh, And so this morning, we're going to pray responsively uh, with a prayer that um, Dallas Willard wrote um, as a paraphrase of the Lord's Prayer, um, and interspersed in that prayer um, are um, ways for us to personally respond. Uh, So with that, would you pray with me? Dear Father, always near us, for our hearts were made to cling to you in love. May your name be treasured and loved Help us to notice and adore you purely for your own sake. May your rule be completed in us. Order our souls, our steps, and our lives to align with your reign. May your will be done here on earth. Help us to be faithful ambassadors of your rule and reign in just the way it is done in heaven. Help our words and deeds to be signposts of your coming kingdom. Give us today the things we need today. Help us to receive your good gifts with gratitude. And forgive us our sins and impositions on you. Grant us grace to love you and others more fervently and mercy when we fail to love well. As we are forgiving all who in any way offend us, Help us to extend mercy rather than vengeance to those who wrong us. Please don't put us through trials. Refashion our hearts for perfect love of you and others so that temptations don't get the best of us. But deliver us from everything bad. Bear us up that we might take faithful steps toward you each day because you are the one in charge You are sovereign Lord and King, and you have all the power. You hold the entire creation in suspense by your very word, and the glory too is all yours forever. You are worthy of all the praise and honor we could ever speak, which is just the way we wanted. By your spirit, let it be so in us, amen. I invite you once more to stand as you are able and let's sing together the Lord's Prayer. One, two, three. 
Street. Sisters and brothers in Christ, it is because of Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection that we have peace with God and with each other. The peace of Christ be with you. I invite you, as you are comfortable and able, to share a sign of that peace with your neighbor and those who are joining online to greet each other in the chat.
Her bell choir is amazing. You guys redeemed shine, Jesus, shine for me. <laughs> uh, good morning, fellowship. Uh, my name is, if I've not yet met you, Tiara. I'm one of the pastors here at Fellowship, where our mission is to love God and others as a as an accepting community centered in Christ and focused on developing. Jesus. Uh, if you are new with us this morning, um, new with us because this is your first Sunday here, or maybe you've been here for a few Sundays and you are ready to get to know us a little bit better, uh, there's something in the back of the sanctuary called a connection card. They're on those three little tables in the back of the sanctuary. You can fill one of those out and you can take it over to the Welcome Center after the service. And there's some really, really great, really friendly folks there who would love to meet you and greet you by name and help you to get to know us a little bit better too. Uh, a couple things for us this morning. Uh, first, our Thanksgiving Eve service is coming up on, uh, well, Thanksgiving Eve, uh, same day every year. <laughs> Throughout the year, we try to practice gratitude from week to week and from day to day in our own individual lives. But Thanksgiving Eve is, is the day that we gather together to practice gratitude for what God has done and the goodness that he has brought to our lives together. Uh, so Thanksgiving Eve, 6.30 p.m. here in the sanctuary with dinner at 5.45 p.m. out in the atrium. Secondly, uh, if you are looking for an incredible way to serve refugees, uh, you want to not just talk about refugees, but actually have an impact um, on their experience here, uh, a group is gathering after this service in N1 uh, to discuss possibilities for mission and ministry to refugee families this season. Uh, thirdly, uh, we are, uh, throughout this month, not only looking back um, over the decades of Fellowship's existence, but we're also looking ahead. Uh, we're looking ahead specifically to the 24-25 ministry year and discerning what steps God would have us to take as a church this season. Uh, so part of that discernment uh, for us involves hearing from you. Uh, through our values scorecard, uh, some of you received last week, uh, you um, taking this um, helps us to take a pulse individually, but also collectively as a community. And you can either do that online at fellowshipreform.org forward slash survey, or you can do that um, with the cards over at the Welcome Center in person. Uh, so last week, we kicked off No Scrooge November, which I think is way better than No Shave November. Uh, <laughs> um, I'm gonna nix the joke about unaccompanied mustaches because some of you have them. So uh, throughout, uh, throughout this month, we'll be supporting um, local mission partners through No Scrooge November, uh, gift cards for families um, at Bethany Christian, personal hygiene or household items for the West Ottawa Food Pantry, food items for hand-to-hand, -hand, and Christmas gifts uh, that you can kind of pick up an ornament from the tree out there, Christmas gifts for the upcoming Hope Christmas store. Uh, so you can drop off any of these items at any point uh, throughout the month out in the atrium. This is just, No Scrooge November is just one of the ways that we seek to live generously as a community of faithful followers of Jesus who are partnered together in mission and ministry, both locally and globally. Uh, if you have yet to partner with us financially, you can do so uh, through the giving bowls in the back uh, or also online. And last but not least, we would be remiss if we didn't take a moment to celebrate our veterans. Um, if you um, have served, or if you are the family member of a person who served, would you please stand if you're able? Yeah. Thanks. 
thank you for your service, um, but also the peace and the justice and the freedom wrought through your service, not only locally here, but also around the world. Um, and at this time, kids ages three through eighth grade are um, dismissed to, um, to, to other worship things, and the rest of us can continue in singing. Friends, as we continue in worship, um, this next song is really our prayer that God would speak to us, um, not only through what we've already experienced this morning, but as we continue and hear God's word preached, that our hearts would be sensitive to what the Spirit is saying to us. Would you stand and let's sing together? You know, there's always that point, the, the point of no return. <laughs> I think I'm there. This is it. There's no going back now. I'm stuck. I'll tell you what, though, in an outfit like this one, I'm ready to conquer the world. I mean, you name the sport, I'm in. If you've got a thigh master, I will crush that thing. If you want to go parasailing, I'm ready. Honestly, if I had to pick a favorite decade, the 1980s just might be it for me. Of course, that's not because of all the bad stuff that also happened in that decade. The AIDS crisis, the nuclear meltdown of Chernobyl, reckless consumerism, other hurtful things. Not because of those things. But what I love about the 80s is the great music. Michael Jackson, Van Halen, Tina Turner, Run DMC? Come on. <laughs> I love the great movies of the 80s. Iron Eagle, The Goonies, Die Hard, Back to the Future. Great stuff. 
I love also the outfits of the 80s, of course. There's the ridiculously colored jogger suits and the oversized Adidas shoes, which I don't have. You'll have to use your imagination for those kinds of things, but it's a great decade. We are today at Fellowship continuing our waltz through the decades and also through fellowships, long-held but freshly named values. Last week, we were in the 70s and focused on the value of being real and Bryce Vanderstelt looking more like Jesus than any other pastor in recent history. (laughs) Bryce reminded us that at Fellowship, we take God seriously, but we don't take ourselves too seriously. Hence, his outfit. Hence, this outfit. Today, we continue on and uh, are intending to name Fellowship's second long held but freshly named value, and that is that we are unifying, which doesn't mean that we're all the same. It doesn't mean that we all agree on everything. It doesn't mean that differences don't matter. What it does mean, at least at fellowship, is that we are a people who say people matter more than perspectives, or otherwise that you, as a person, you matter more than my view on a topic. Before we dive into the specifics of that a bit more, I want to invite you to join me in prayer. Let's pray together. Oh God, our help in ages past and our hope for years to come, I pray that you would meet us now at this moment, this moment in the middle, so that as we open your word again, you might give us ears to hear and eyes to see what your spirit has to say to the church today. And to that end only, I pray with the psalmist of Psalm 19 that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And all God's people said, amen. When I think about what it means to be unifying, a person that comes to mind for me is Grandpa Max Borsma. I married into the Borsma family and I got to know Grandpa Max for just a little bit of time, but he was a delight and a treasure of a man He died suddenly of a heart attack, but before that happened, I was able to learn some things about him that he and I have very much in common. First of all, he was a car guy. He worked in the car industry. He sold Mazdas and Volkswagens. I am so a car guy. I love cars. Grandpa Max loved pizza, especially pizza with Mountain Dew. And my, oh my, I love pizza too. I think pizza is God's best edible gift to humanity. Max Borsma was also a churchman, and of course, I am a churchman. In fact, I got the great honor of inheriting from Max Borsma his copy of Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, okay? I also have my own set of Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, and guess what? Both sets are underlined and have notes in the margins from start to finish, all 1,600 pages. Good old Max Borsma. But the reason I'm bringing him up today is because Max was also a unifier. He was an integral part of the racial integration of the Grand Rapids Public Schools in the 1960s when such a thing was not so popular. He was a unifier. Today, I want to suggest for you and I together three texts, and each text 
paints a little bit of a different picture for us of what it might mean for us today to be a unifying church. The first text I want to share is about the internal composition of being a unifying church, our internal composition, and it's a metaphor, one of the Bible's best, most memorable metaphors. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we find it, and this is the message translation from Eugene Peterson. Listen to the word of the Lord. It says, the way God designed our bodies is a model for understanding our life together as a church. Your body has many parts, limbs, organs, cells, but no matter how many parts you can name, you're still one body. It's exactly the same with Christ. By means of his one spirit, we all said goodbye to our partial and piecemeal lives. Each of us is now a part of his resurrection body, refreshed and sustained at the one fountain, his spirit, where we all come to drink. Now, a body isn't just a single part blown up into something huge. It's all the different but similar parts arranged and functioning together. An enormous eye or a gigantic hand wouldn't be a body, but a monster. No part is important on its own. If one part hurts, every other part is involved in the hurt and in the healing. If one part flourishes, every other part enters into the exuberance. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The metaphor is brilliant and super simple, so much so that even a kindergartner might be able to understand it. Anybody who has a body can relate to this metaphor of a body. Let me name a couple obvious things that are called out in this metaphor. First, everybody has a head, and the head is basically the master control of the body. Without a head, the body is basically dead. Right? That rhymed. I think the outfit is working, so you're welcome for that. (laughs) In the Christian church, Jesus Christ is the head of the body, which means that when I or when you, when we join the body of Christ, we surrender, I surrender my way and take up his way because he is the head of the body. That's the first thing. The second thing that the metaphor draws out for us that's somewhat obvious is that a human body is purposefully designed to be a unity of diverse parts. It is not supposed to be a single part monster. At Fellowship, we use the phrase sometimes that unity does not equal uniformity. And that's what's being spoken of here. Christian unity is actually a fellowship of difference. We are not supposed to be a monocellular blob. The imagery in the text is actually really vivid and memorable, right? It's like the children's movie, Monsters, Inc. If you remember that big eyeball walking around or like a big hand or a foot, that's a monster. It's not a body. And in the church, it's similar. Individuals are not supposed to become celebrities. Issues are not supposed to become idols. When a small part becomes disproportionately more important than all the other parts, that's not a body anymore. That's a monster, according to this metaphor. The third thing that I think is worth noticing with this metaphor, the internal composition of being a unifying church, is that every different part matters uniquely. No part can turn and say to another, I don't need you. If you lop off a leg, the body will walk with a limp. All the parts are inter- Related so much so that if one part hurts, we know this when we're sick. If one part hurts, every part hurts. 
if one part is flourishing, every part is contributing to that flourishing. One of my favorite little artifacts from our life together here at Fellowship Church is the way that Fellowship took a unique way through the worship wars of the 1990s. You may remember the worship wars. Most churches were impacted by these. It was when most churches were infighting about what's better, classic or contemporary worship styles. Hymns sung with the, sung with the organ or praise songs sung alongside the band. Fellowship Church was not immune to the heat and the volatility of this particular debate, especially because both groups were ultimately seeking the same thing, though we maybe weren't naming it so well at the time. Both groups simply wanted to worship God meaningfully. And so as fellowships sought a way forward through this, fellowship did what we often do on many things. We chose a both-and way rather than an either-or kind of way. And in choosing both-and we learned that there were a couple expenses, specifically two major expenses, in order to proceed forward in a both-and kind of a way. The first is that we needed new hymnals. We needed new hymnals if we were going to sing the hymns. They're the ones that you have with you in the pews right now. We needed those hymns, and that cost real money. We also needed a new soundboard. If we're going to have a praise band, we needed that too, and that also cost real money. So when it came time to ask for the funds to make these things happen, guess what, guess what happened? The largest donation for each came from people in the opposite camp. How cool is that? So the people who are the biggest fans of singing hymns, one of those families was the largest donor to get the soundboard for the praise band. And the people who loved praise bands and wanted the drums and the guitar and stuff, one of those families was the largest donor to get the hymn books for the other service. Why would Fellowship Church do that? Because we are a body and every part matters. No monsters, please. And even more so, the main thing must always remain the main thing. And the main thing is that Jesus Christ is the head of the body, no matter what our various worship prep preferences might be. Long ago, it was St. Augustine who tried to put this kind of thing into words for us. It's hard to live out, but simple to state. He said, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. One of the ways that we try to live that out here as individuals in a congregation called Fellowship is by this way called defined and connected, a fist and a hand. Now, the fist is not made so that you can go and punch somebody, of course. The fist is made as an invitation to be an individual who has humble convictions. You're not asked to have no opinion. You are invited to be following Jesus as best you know how at any given moment in the world. And Jesus is a defining head or a defining center. So we have a humble conviction, but we also extend the hand of fellowship to people who might even think differently than we do on certain issues. And we do that because difference is inevitable. And division is a choice. Go back a slide if you could. Divi uh, difference is inevitable and division is a choice. Unity does not require uniformity. And so we are defined and connected in our life together. The next text that I want to draw your attention to is the one you just saw up there, John chapter 17. And now we're talking not about the internal composition of a unifying church. We're talking now about the external impact of being a unifying church. 
I've come to call this passage the real Lord's Prayer, and I do so because there is the other prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. It's the one that disciples of Jesus pray. It's our prayer. This one is the real Lord's Prayer in the sense that it's the one that Jesus himself actually prayed. It's otherwise called the high priestly prayer of John 17. Jesus prays for three things. The first section, he prays for himself. In the second section, he prays for his immediate disciples at the time, the 11 who are with him at that moment. And then in the last section, he prays this. He says, my prayer is not only for them, the remaining 11 disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's us, the future church, that all of them may be one father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. Notice how repeated that is. I and them and you and me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know, he says, then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you loved me. The word of the Lord. Again, there's two things worth naming, and they're actually quite obvious. The first is that Jesus really only makes one request about the future church, about us today, and the one request is that we would be one. It's the one thing he prays. He could have requested all kinds of other things. He could have requested that we would be right. He could have requested that we would successfully avoid sin or sinners. But the one request that he makes is that we would be one and be brought to complete unity. The second thing is an extension of that. It's the why. It's the reason behind his desire for our oneness. And it is so that the world may know. So that the world may know that he is the Christ. So that the world may know that he is Lord. So that the world may know that all things hold together in him. In this prayer, we get a a window into the mind of Jesus. And it appears to be, he's saying, our unity is our witness to the world. And disunity is is an anti-witness. Now, unfortunately, you probably know, if we're honest, the history of the, church is, the history of the church reveals that we have not done a very good job of living into this kind of unity. Put together a chart for you of just a survey of some of the disputes that have happened throughout the ages and among Christians. And I put them in three categories, one of them being cultural, the second being theological, and the third being moral. So an example of a cultural exam, uh, 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 dispute is, should we swim on Sundays, among the other ones? An example of a theological dispute would be whether we should baptize infants or adults. An example of a moral dispute would be whether we should be cloning humans or woolly mammoths and a host of other moral disputes that exist among us. And now here's a simple way if you want to splinter the church. It's happened throughout history, and it's happening now. Number one, reduce everything into a binary, this or that. Number two, force everyone to pick a side. And number three, assume that if we disagree, we must divide. Sound familiar? Or... Here's an alternative, alternative, a unifying alternative. We could focus on the center rather than the periphery. We could decide to join hands with others who are seeking to know and follow Jesus, and we could make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's Ephesians chapter 4. That's different. There's a quote from C.S. Lewis that says, 
Uh, this is from his book, Mere Christianity, his radio broadcast, this fun little line. He says, one of the things that Christians are in disagreement about is the importance of their disagreements. <laughs> that great line. A couple of years ago, in the midst of the COVID pandemic, the Colossian Forum in Grand Rapids did some research to uncover the biggest issues facing the church today. Among all the things that they considered, they found that the biggest threat, the biggest piece of the pie up there was divisiveness around hot topics of racism, politics, and sexuality. Now consider this artifact from our own history here at Fellowship. About five or 10 years ago, when the RCA was trying to find a way forward through one of these very divisive issues, hot topics, they asked for delegates to be sent from congregations like Fellowship to to represent the church and to speak into the issues. Fellowship was considering who to send and two prominent, well-respected members were up uh, and being considered. If I said their names right now, you'd, you'd know them. You'd recognize them. We respect them. But what's interesting about these two is that if forced to choose a side on the issue, they were on opposite ends of the spectrum. And yet... Interestingly, both was willing to send the other to represent Fellowship Church faithfully because they knew and loved and respected and trusted each other that much. They were willing to let the other go. Now, why would they do that? Well, because at Fellowship, our identity is centered in Christ. Our identity is not centered in a divisive position stance on an issue that faithful Christians think differently about. Sometimes, some things matter even more than being right or getting my way or winning the argument. And according to Jesus, in his high priestly prayer, our unity is our witness and disunity is an anti-witness. So consider a couple headlines. These are real ones that have been somewhat recent. Two stories. This one came to my inbox. And think about what might be the response of a watching world to a church acting in the world. This side is a headline that suggests a popular pastor is asking the question, igniting a debate about whether Christians should be drinking coffee in sanctuaries. Some of you are like, "Mm, let's not talk about that right now. Okay, or, and on this side, there's another one. And this one is a story about churches in the area, including Fellowship, uniting together to build homes for people who need them. Fun fact from Fellowship's history, there was a 15-year stretch where Fellowship joined together with four other congregations and built 15 houses, one per year for 15 families who needed them. Those other churches were Beechwood, Hardawike, Our Lady of the Lake, and Peace Lutheran. And of course, fellowship too. Now, which story do you think is a better witness to the world? Our divisiveness about whether we should drink coffee in the sanctuary or Christians banding together to fix real problems. Our unity is our witness and disunity is an anti-witness. Before I bring you to the last of the texts today, I wanna pause and take a moment to name some important yeah buts. And what I mean by the yeah buts is the things you've been thinking all along throughout this sermon on unity. You're thinking, yeah, but, yeah, but. So I'm going to name a couple of my yeah buts about being unifying. About being unifying, the zealot in me says, yeah, but what about truth? 
Isn't unity basically a compromise about being unifying? The realist in me says, yeah, but come on. If we don't agree, how are we ever going to get along? About being unifying. The practical side of me says, yeah, but okay, fine. Unity, but what about the crazy people? I mean, have you met them? They're crazy. And they're defined, of course, as ones who are, think differently than me. Finally, the cynic in me says, okay, fine. We're supposed to be a body. Yes, but everybody has a spleen. We don't need a spleen. Men don't need nipples. People survive amputations. Huh? Okay, so if the going gets tough, let's just amputate. In Matthew chapter 13, we find Jesus responding to some of these very same types of questions, actually. So Jesus tells one of his less popular parables. It's the parable of the weeds and the wheat. In the parable about those other people, those people who are clearly so bad and wrong. You can read that up there. I'm not going to read it for you. But Jesus' response about what to do with the weeds among the wheat. He doesn't say that we should go and plant a new field somewhere else, excluding them. He doesn't say that we should be diligent to uproot and eliminate all of those other people. He simply says, let the two grow together because uprooting the one might actually harm the other. So just wait until the last day when the Lord of the harvest will come and sort out the weeds from the wheat. And someone in the midst shouts out, yeah, but, yeah, but what about church discipline? What about church discipline? Jesus talked about church discipline too. What about that? It's a great point, fair point. But on that, I'll remind you that church discipline done well is always ultimately about the restoration and re-inclusion of the once lost one. Church discipline is not supposed to be about actively excluding, uprooting, and eliminating the wrong and the bad ones with no intention of ever bringing them back into the fold. That's different. The church in the world today will never reach the desired purity that some want for it. In fact, listen to these very words of John Calvin, John Calvin on this very text of Jesus, Matthew chapter 13. He says, it seems quite inconsistent to many that the church should nurse in her bosom the ungodly, the irreligious, or the wicked. Add that, under the pretense of zeal, many are more awkward than they need be if everything is not settled according to their wishes, and they go mad and leave the church or upset and ruin everything with their harsh strictness. So long as the church is on pilgrimage in this world, the good and the sincere will be mixed in with the bad and the hypocrites. So the children of God must arm themselves with patience and maintain an unbroken constancy of faith among all the offenses, all the offenses that trouble them. Interesting word and difficult to live out in the real world. So the Apostle Paul is the one who helps us. He gets really practical. We've talked so far already about the internal composition of being a unifying church. We've talked about the external impact of being a unifying church. Consider now some of the daily practices of being a unifying church. They come to us from the Apostle Paul at the end of his letter to the church in Rome. A few verses. 
One of them is chapter 12, verse 18, where he says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. It just might be the most qualified text in all of scripture. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. It's a way of saying control what you can control and don't fuss about controlling the things you can't control. I can control me. I can't control you. And so if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, on me, live at peace with everyone. Do your part, basically, is what it's saying. In the daily trenches, do your part. The next one, chapter 14, verse 1, he says, accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. And in the whole chapter, he brings forth a distinction between the weak and the strong, the mature and the immature. And the fun thing is that the reader is left to decide which one you are. Are you the weak or the strong? Are you the immature or the mature? But the presumption is that if you're the strong one, if you're the mature one, the onus is on you to bring forth the unity of the one who is weaker or more immature. Don't dispute over, don't quarrel over the disputable matters. I do this with my children. I have two kids, they're different ages. We do this. We expect the older one to be able to figure it out, how to get along with the younger one if things aren't necessarily going well. And so it's happening in this passage as well, also for us. The last one to draw forth is chapter 15, verse 7, where he says, welcome one another just as Christ has welcomed you. There's a daily disposition to try on in your daily life. Remember the golden rule of Jesus? The golden rule of Jesus is do unto others as you would wish they would do unto you. That's a good rule for life. Practice it daily. This might be the platinum rule. One step further, do unto others as Christ has done unto you. And what has Christ done unto you? What has he done unto me? Forgiven all of my sins. Sacrificed himself for my salvation. The text is not saying that I need to be the savior. But the text is inviting me to be like him in my relationships with others. Some suggestions about how we might live out this practice of being a unifying church in our daily activities. At Fellowship, we've landed on a few phrases. This will look familiar. The Wayfinder 5Gs is one of the ways we try to live this out in our daily activities. If and when, especially when, when conflict happens in your life, rather than running away from it or attacking the other person, we take on these 5Gs. We go towards them. We go towards them relationally. Then we go Godward in prayer. Then we get curious We're eager to ask more questions to gather greater understanding rather than standing on a soapbox. Then we go deep. We go deep investigating my own fears and loves and wondering about what your fears and loves might be in the midst of the conflict. And then finally, we seek to get right, which by the way, is not proving everybody to everybody that I've been right all along. (laughs) Get right is reconciliation wherever there has been rupture. That's the Wayfinder, 5Gs. We're about out of time. Let me just review. Friends, if we want to be a unifying church, which I think God has been and still is inviting us to be here at Fellowship Church, remember first the metaphor. We are a body, a diversity of parts with one head. Remember second, the mission. Jesus said, that we should be one so that the world may know. And our unity is our witness. Disunity is an anti-witness. 
Finally, remember some of the practices, the daily dispositions of living out the golden rule, the platinum rule, and even the wayfinder 5Gs when disruptions occur. May the Lord help us to live out these very things. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Friends, in our response this morning, we're mindful that we can only be one because Christ is the head. He is also the foundation. The church is one foundation. We're going to sing that. A fun fact about this song is that in just the first couple of months of fellowship's history, this was a song that was sung at a congregational meeting. So it's been part of our history from day one. Would you stand and let's sing together? church is one foundation is jesus christ her lord she is his new creation by water and the word from heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride with his own blood he Friends, when you know who you are, you know what to do. At Fellowship Church, this is us. We are real, unifying, inviting, and equipping. 
It's who God has called us to be and to increasingly become. So as you go from this place to be a unifying people, may the grace of the Lord Jesus, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you always. Amen. Go in peace. Thank <laughs> you.